Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey everyone, it's Yas here and I'm calling today with a little favour to ask. Over the recent weeks and months, I've had loads of you get in touch with some great questions and today I'm going to be trying something new with the show. I'm trialling a Q&A segment where I'll be joined by a co-host and elite coach educator, Gerard Jones. Now these are discussions which are going to be taking place every Sunday evening at 7.30 GMT live on Twitter space if you wanted to get involved directly. Otherwise, I'll be releasing them here every Wednesday on the Coaches Network podcast. So for today's format, it's slightly different. And for around about 30 minutes, each discussion will be dedicated to a question that has been sent in where myself and Joa will be going into some real depth and sharing our views and opinions on the topic in order to leave you with some key takeaways to consider in your own environments. So the favour I'm asking for today, guys, is if you could let me know your thoughts on the new format and you can do this by getting in touch on Twitter at The Coaches Net. Once again, that is at The Coaches Net. And of course, if you have a question, feel free to send that in too. Hope you enjoy the new format. The Coaches Network, bringing the game together. Hey guys, you're now listening to the Coaches Network podcast, a podcast aimed at anyone who's passionate about athlete, talent and personal development. My name's Coach Yas and I'm a UEFA A licensed football coach, coach developer and content creator. I'll be sitting down with a range of guests to discuss their journeys, their life lessons and how you can make an impact. Enjoy. The question that was posed to me rather, you know, passing. You know, the, the question was more specifically, when does it become key to introduce passing into a program and at what age should it be, be considered a priority? Just wanted to kind of maybe get your thoughts on that. We can kind of tailor from there, mate. Yeah, and I think this is going to be a really interesting debate, right? And obviously, I'm, I'm excited to hear what everyone's thoughts are on this. And feel free to retweet this again. Keep mentioning it because the more people joining this conversation, the more ideas and different perspectives, the better. From my end, I would probably say everything we do when we're coaching... Oh, they've just scored. Sorry. <laughs> Great talk. Top corner. Um, everything we do when we're coaching should be around designing learning experiences. And that's the object of what we're trying to achieve. So that means that we're going to be developing players holistically. And of course, you know, in order to design these reality-based environments, you're going to be working on attacking, you're going to be working on defending. There should be elements of transition. There should be a, an incentive where when the team win the ball, where do they go? So is there a clear method of scoring? You know, is it directional? So on and so on. And in order to do that, you're going to end up working on, of course, passing because you can't achieve, you know, the outcomes of attacking or defending principles without players being able to have the choice of when to pass, when to dribble, when to run with it, when to take a shot, when to play with disguise, so on and so on and so on. And I would say at the earliest ages, you're going to be designing these learning environments. But the, the key is how much emphasis we probably place on passing becoming this thing over other qualities so when you look at Pete Sturgis who's a fantastic reference for a lot of people to, to check out if you don't know who he is and he's the, the, the national coach within England working and responsible for the foundation phase he often uses that phrase of we don't want pass to be the default 
And what he's suggesting there is that often even at U7, U8, right through, you've got parents, you've got coaches shouting, pass it, pass it, pass it. And the danger then becomes is that players aren't necessarily making those decisions or solutions themselves. They're, they're, the passing takes away from the, the ability for players to develop their own individualism, stay on the ball, recognise when to dribble, when to pass, and, and all the other key qualities that they need. And it can take away from player development. So I think, you know, if you want to develop passing, design environments where, even with the younger ages, it can be clever games of throwing and catching. So you're throwing and catching, you're developing little basketball-type games, which is getting players to get their eyes up. It's getting players to work on other qualities, you know, coordination, throwing, catching, throw-head volley, loads of different types of games where, again, then you can drop the ball down to the feet. If you want to develop more soccer-specific, football-specific work, of course you can do, and I have. But I would probably place a premium value on players being able to dribble and run with the ball at the earlier stages and how to stay on the ball. So they're developing that individualism. And then as they're getting older, I'd probably play more focus around, uh, all right, well, how and when do we use that ball to, to disguise our intentions in different ways? How do we use the ball to unlock or create gaps within the opposition? And as you get more tactical and you've done a lot of work on individual tactics, you're obviously doing more work on team where you're moving the ball to move the opposition, create the gaps to break lines and so on. But I think the real danger comes is that coaches will often see passing and go, no, 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 I watched the Man United game. Maybe that's a bad example. Man City, Liverpool, whoever. That's how we need to play. So they end up imposing the adult game on the kids and start treating kids as these, you know, premature adults and it becomes premature professionalism. And then we're just coaching passing. Passing becomes the default, but kids don't recognize, well, when's the best opportunities to do that? And even the qualities and the ver- and the varied experiences of how to. So that, that would be my initial stance to, to evolve the conversation um, and just think about, yeah, how can we design experiences where they get those opportunities to work on, principles of attacking defending and so on which will mean that they get opportunities to work on passing but you know how do you how do you keep encouraging kids to find their own creative solutions to problems rather than you know you could go from one extreme to the next where we're we're doing overly sanitized environments we're doing these passing drills we might even put uh, conditions on the practice where we're saying two touch max when you get the ball you must go here we're eliminating decision making and problem solving. Whereas if we're playful in our language and we're saying try to, you know, and, and other things, we're allowing the players that freedom to, to develop those qualities of passing, which we can introduce, but not at the detriment of other probably key qualities. Sorry if that's a long answer, but there's probably a lot in there that we can unpack. Yeah, definitely. I think there's some, there, is, there probably is quite a bit in there. I think first things first is to really look at the question and I think for me there's two key things that stand out for me in this and it's when does passing become key can you know first of all it might be a case of are we looking at passing as a priority um, and secondly I'm talking about actually just developing the skills of being able to pass the ball um, so I think there's, there's two elements you know, in terms of the technical piece around actually helping young players 
understand how to pass the ball and what that looks like. And then the, the second piece is actually now encouraging it as a as a conscious priority, if you like, when in, when applying it in, in game situations. So you know, similar to what you were talking about earlier, you know, don't make pass the only option. Don't make it the default. And I think that's really it's a really good uh, way of looking at it. So I think what what we need to start doing, and you know, it's interesting. You know, we've got one of the one of the guys in the in in the in the space now. He's got a, a quote from Mourinho as his display picture, and he says, "In England, you only teach your kids how to win." In Portugal and Spain, they teach your kids how to play the game. And I think it's spot on. We need to spend more time helping the players develop an understanding of when to apply the skills, such as passing, dribbling, shooting, or whatever other skills they may be, which then kind of brings you back to, you know, the, the, the earlier stage or the entry point for players to come into the game and just how important it is. I think one of the key things here is actually looking at what age group you're working with because there's entry points at different ages you know you've got players as young as five six seven getting involved in football and some people don't start playing until they're slightly older so I think it depends on the age as well Um, but I think what's really key here is looking at something you touched on as well Gerard you know are we we telling players how to do things are we allowing them to come up with their own creative solutions and actually understand when and where they should be applying these skills so I think for me if we unpack that and look at the first piece which is actually should we coach passing? Should we help players understand how to pass the ball at an early stage? You know, there's a lot of lot of coaches, and you know, it's been a long-standing thing, I'd say, in terms of players being coached around quote-unquote ball mastery. I mean, can you really master the ball when it's unopposed? I'm not too sure. Um, is it is it really the same context? Is it you know? Does it even apply itself? And obviously, there is going to be some benefits to it. And there's going to be some people that will maybe disagree with what I'm saying but I think similar to the way you work at ball mastery I think we should be working on passing and it might not always necessarily be two players standing five seat five six ten feet away from each other and just batting the ball back and forth actually it might just be using maybe a games-based approach where you're encouraging passing it might be an incentive around passing so for instance when they're playing the ball are they actually playing the right passes? Could they, you know, are we, are we coaching them? Coming back to the discussion we had last week around the principles, if we go back to the principles of the game, ultimately we want to help the players understand how to play the game and that is through the principles and not specifically the technical skills required, if you like. So I think there should be a more focus on that than anything else. And I think as as we start to get older, so you know, I've, I've had plenty of coaches come and you know, ask me before, you know, when they're in the foundation phase, um, for you know, 5 to 11s, do you encourage passing? I said, to be honest, if you know, I'm not really bothered whether they pass the ball at 5 to 11 because this is, the, for me, the piece where they're actually going to really genuinely develop ball mastery in games where passing necessarily is encouraged. Is it going to benefit every single player on the pitch? Maybe not. But we just need to find ways to get the players on the ball more often where they're actually able to, as you said, Gerard, find creative solutions to the situations they're in. And sometimes that's not passing. Sometimes it is actually taking the risk and actually dribbling past one, past two, past three if possible, and then helping them unpack and understand, right, okay, this is where that decision might have let you down. Or actually, in other cases, this is where you did really well with that decision. So I think that's the first piece to kind of highlight. I don't know what your thoughts are on that, Jared. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. And of course, you know, there's Tom would be able to explain this better. But I remember him describing to me some of the focuses at Manchester United and often that they would say that, Certainly within the, the foundation phase, that you know they didn't want to place too much emphasis on possession for possession's sake, 
but actually looking at possession as an individual event and ha- and that's your point like it could be where the best opportunity to, is to stay on the ball or to to dribble to eliminate to create the passing opportunity or whatever and they saw passing as if we're promoting passing and passing becomes the, the default we're not developing players through that individualism the person who's getting better won't be the person on the ball it'll be the person receiving because I'm on the ball now and I could have I could have potentially stayed with it or I could have done something else but instead I'm just being encouraged to constantly release that ball so everyone else is going to get better and I thought that was an interesting standpoint on it um, I think for passing it should be that yes you need to be able to pass but not at the detriment of, of other key principles you know obviously we have to move the object of the game is to score more goals than the opposition and in doing so, we need to be effective and efficient in how we use possession to get the ball forward. It's a directional game. You know, we score goals in one end, we defend the other. So at some point, you're going to have to pass the ball. But you'll often see coaches really focusing on these passing drills, patterns. But the players can't maybe make those distances because they're physically not developed yet. Technically, the 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 forcing players to conform to this sort of ideal technical model that there's a correct way to pass the ball there's a correct way to to strike there's a correct way to do this or to do that and I'm not too sure how well that sits with me because you know I mean we've got Lee who's an outstanding player in his game it'd be interesting to hear his thoughts you've got Dean who's worked at some fantastic levels there's a lot of experience you know listening it'd be interesting to hear everyone's thoughts I would probably suggest that if we're talking about passing or any particular sort of player action, players have to come up with their own solutions to to gain problems. And no one-size-fits-all approach can be used in every situation because the game is random. And also, I've seen players who might have an unorthodox stance, if you like, or technique, however you want to call it, approach to the way they strike the ball, right? And conventionally, you might say, oh, that's not right. Maybe your foot needs to be placed here. Maybe they need to use this part of the foot when they're striking the ball. They need to do this. They need to do that. A lot of people will embed that in their curriculum, even at the older ages. And they'll spend a lot of time on it, even PDP. But and doing set patterns and routines and what have you. But everyone's got a different approach. Everyone's body mechanics are different. You know, we all have this. Every player has their own unique movement signature. So to imply that my uh, model of te- my technical model of how to to perform that correct action is the purest one and the best the only approach is is arguably flawed because obviously every player is different, everyone's profile is different, their movement mechanics are different. You know, you're stockier than me. I, I might have shorter legs than you. Lee might have longer legs than me. His feet might be size ten. My might. It, we're all different, so um, and you can see that even in some of the top players that they all have slightly different approaches to how they'll strike the ball, and that's fantastic. And I think we should be thinking about how we design environments where they're learning to manipulate the ball, fall in love with the ball, you know, be confident at dealing with the ball and handling the ball, and finding ways to clip it, chip it drive it, do a rap pass, do whatever it may be. You know, Liverpool have a specific curriculum around the types of passing that's within their academy. 
and their vocab will link to the types of if it's a rap pass, if it's a driven, if it's a clipped, if it's a lofted, and they'll do a lot of work on that, which is great. Um, but everyone's approach to doing that, the way Jordan Henderson will strike a ball differently to a Mane. I mean, look at some of the African players. You can always tell an African player, a South American player, by the way they manipulate the ball or the way they use the sole of the foot or the way, you know, even look at Ozil, how he used to stamp on the ball to do this sort of crazy little uplift thing to chip the ball over defences that's unorthodox. And it would disguise his intention, but it would also get an incredible lift over defences that no one can read, rather than always teaching this predictable you know, pass, which is telegraphing where the intention is with the inside of the foot and how we play. But there's a lot of players that will play off the outside of the foot. So I don't know. That probably without creating a can of worms, it'd be great to hear everyone's thoughts. Yes, you've got to work on passing, but I think the challenge is creating environments where kids can cut their own solutions and, and feel comfortable playing with their feet and trying different things rather than conforming to the coach's ideal technical solution of the only way is to do something is this way. Oh, I, think, I think you're spawned there's some great stuff. I just want to just kind of build on that before we uh, before we open up the conversation to other people in the room. I think what you know, I share a story that you know, I've, shared, I've shared before, so apologies if you've heard it before, but it was really, really an impactful uh, moment for me. At one point, I was working with um, a set of goalkeepers in particular, actually. I was I think five different goalkeepers I was working with and I went into the session thinking right this session needs to look like this and this is how it needs to be done and completed in order to achieve success in the task if you like and straight away what I realised was I actually had five different players in front of me all from different backgrounds different experiences some of them from different countries and what I was finding that actually if I looked at the outcome, they were all achieving the outcome. But something just didn't feel right to me. And it was the fact that I went into the session having an ideal way in which it should be done. But to, just to kind of, you know, echo your point, they were all individual, whether that based on their physical makeup, whether that be based on their cultural experiences, their, the coaches that maybe they've been exposed to or maybe not even been coached before. So they've also, they've also developed their own techniques. But what it really kind of, jumped out to me and said was that actually you need to spend more time maybe assessing the technique players are actually using and maybe questioning and challenging why they're actually using those techniques for themselves as opposed to trying to affect their technique in a particular set format if you like so then you end up getting a cookie cutter process which is what you were kind of alluding to a little a little while ago and I think just to build on that maybe coaches start to consider how much time do you actually maybe figure out or spend figuring out why they do it in the way they do it. Do you ever ask any questions? You know, why do you strike the ball in that way? Why why do you get why do you feel that you need to maybe um receive it with your with, with a body shape that might not be considered fully open but actually you're still getting success. You know, having that conversation with a place to really understand it. Because what you if I go back to that that scenario, what ended up happening was I started to assess these things, started asking some of these questions and what ended up happening was I actually then had a, a a few different ways in which I could go forward working with other players in the future because where maybe technique A wasn't the one that worked for them, it might have been actually down the line. Technique C works really well for this person. I can share that technique and try and support them in that way because actually there was maybe a few similarities to the person who I saw that technique from initially, if that makes sense. I think just to kind of finish up on that is just looking at what's more important, the outcome of the task or the process. 
and that's you know that I think that, that that's the point I want really coaches to kind of hold on to if anything is what's more important to you how it gets done or whether the players are able to do it um and just on that note you know I'm going to kind of just ask everyone in the room because we're getting a lot of people coming in and out which is really really good if you guys could just quickly reshare this space you know it's, it's great to see so many people in the conversation tonight just kind of highlight myself and Gerard are here every single Sunday taking on different questions from listeners um, and people that have put questions to us and this is the perfect space to do it um, so I'm just going to open up uh, the room for anyone else to kind of raise their hands and get involved Dean I can see you getting there so I'm just going to join there's Dean there we go I think that's, that's great Sorry, Gerald, I did that by accident, mate. Sorry, I'm going to turn my mic off again. <laughs> no worries. Well, I mean, to be honest, I think um, just to, I just wanted to say so quickly, actually, as to what you said, that of course there'll be certain things that maybe are conventional, and it's not to imply that coaches can't help players, but it's I think the key message is is understanding, as you said, like why they do what they do and. and trying to figure that out and help them get better at adapting their own bodies because everyone is unique great to see what questions we've got comments you know even from yourself Dean on what you've heard or Lee it'd be great to tap into some of your experiences yeah go on then Gerard I'll dive in and have a little chat for a sec because uh, what you and Yaz have just been talking about has really struck a couple of things that I've noticed from working in Spain for the last year and kind of coming from a background in England where, you know, worked in academies, been around academies in England, academies in the US and then coming out to Spain. And the team that I've got is made up of some English players, some European players, some players from the Caribbean, some players from America. So I've got a nice little mixture of players with different experiences and come from different backgrounds. But the biggest thing I've noticed in Spain is just their ability to hold the ball as an individual. And they and a lot of the players communicate to each other using the word solo. And you just hear it all the time during the game. Their ability to play non-linear 1v1s, 361v1s, happy to play under pressure, happy to wriggle out of tough spots. And just linking back to the topic of this, like passing, when does it become key? Like that emphasis that you talked about during that 5-11, to 11, that golden age where we get them with a the ball and we give them the confidence to wriggle out and... I think it's massive, like when we used to work, me and Yas used to work together, you know, we had a technical circuit where we'd expose the players to loads and loads of ball work, but loads of opposed ball work, 1v1 from behind, 1v1 from the side, 1v1 from the front. And being in Spain, just the, the confidence of all the players to just hold the ball for longer and not feel like they have to pass the ball. And then I've got players coming in from different environments that have maybe been taught to pass the ball and they really can't do it. They can't play under pressure. And that's, I think, the difference between the players that can play at a, rate, a relatively good standard and then those players that can play at a really high standard where in those tight spaces, as defences get more organised, can you receive the ball in really tight pressure? Can you play under pressure? Can you wriggle out of tight spots? And you're not just this robot that just wants to pass. And last week, final point, last week we talked about kind of that hidden learning. And we did. A, I've done a lot of work on with the boys here just trying to get them to, you know, to learn how to combine together and hiding that passing and receiving, reframing it as combination play to getting them to use disguise and creativity where they're still passing the ball, but it's, it's hidden within these combination play games with some constraints and some different ways of scoring where they can 
uh, you know, try different passes and experiment with getting the ball from A to B in a different way, but you've actually hidden it within the game topic or the rules of the game or how to score. You get these points by getting the ball into this zone in different ways by missing out certain players or by missing out certain zones. And I think that's just a massive part like we talked about last week, that hidden learning. Um, but the use of the body in the 1v1, it's massively more important for me than the passing. Obviously, you can't allow players to have poor technique and to get away with poor technique. But it's like you've said there, it's going in and seeing, right, well, why did you use your toe? Did you use your toe to just poke through a small space quickly? Did you use your soul to manipulate the ball and move it? Did you stop the ball for a reason? And I think that, like we go back to all the time, that why question has to be asked a little bit more and it to become less rigid and more kind of explorative where the players can just go in there and have a bit of fun and see what works. I think you're spot on, Dean. And I think just to kind of, you know, tag on to what you said there, and, you know, asking that why question is obviously really key, but also understanding that sometimes as coaches, we can actually promote the use of these different techniques, no matter how, you know, unorthodox may, they may be. Can we actually make more suggestions in terms of being able to let the players utilise these different techniques and not downplay them as necessarily bad technique or poor technique? Or, you know, sometimes it might actually be beneficial for us to encourage the quote-unquote unorthodox way of working. And I think that's, you know, I think that's really important. So I think, you know, just to kind of touch on what you said there as well, Dean, I think, you know, you talked there about the, the Spanish players in particular that were not afraid or they were a bit more confident on the ball. Uh, <clears throat> and, you know, obviously you mentioned, you know, when we used to work together, there was, a you know, the one the one v one stuff, the, you know, the technical circuit and stuff like that. But I think, you know, obviously the groups of players that we were working with was around, you know, 16 to 18, really. So, you know, by that point, I think it's really important that they, they're not, they're not worrying about being able to work under pressure anymore and they're actually now able to demonstrate their application of it, if that makes sense. And I think at the young, younger ages and the younger stages, I think what we need to do, and it's interesting because I went to watch a session a couple of weeks back. Um, a coach was working on passing, funnily enough, um, but there seemed to be more emphasis on the person receiving the ball and actually their ability to receive it, quote-unquote, effectively. When actually there was a little bit of a oversight in my opinion on actually the passes need to have more conscious thought around actually how they're transferring that ball from point A to point B whether that be you know not just sending it to the player but actually where are you passing it to um, and one of the key things that came out in that in that, that observation was actually I challenged the coach you know can you can you can you get the players to play without being able to talk as an example because I believe in my in my own way of um, coaching that actually the message should be in the past and not in the communication both verbal and non-verbal can you be effective enough that actually you're, you're the past that you play from Gerard to Dean or Dean to Kofi as an example actually that ball just goes straight through and player knows exactly what they need to do with it simply because of the type of pass you played so it'd be interesting to maybe get anyone else's thoughts on that and whether they've how they approach passing and when at what stage of the you know the development pathway if you like they really start to focus on it as initially as a skill but more specifically then as a as a tool to use in the game and in, in terms of combinations as rather than just right we're just teaching the players and just asking the players to pass the ball for the sake of it save big on brunch for mom all in the kroger app 
Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Any thoughts on that, Gerard? No, I think it's all really good. I mean, there's some great insights. And as I'm as I'm listening in, I'm just, I'm just thinking that it's so much about the experience. Everything we're talking about is individual qualities and experiences. And some of that will be preference. You know, I'll have a preference over one approach. You'll have one approach. You know, Dean, we'll all have our preferences. But how does that relate to the individual needs of the player and again your point there around you know passing and the detail within that communication verbal non-verbal again that's a huge piece how often has that been talked on or ever done any training on at coach education because I've not had it you know and I've gone through courses up to UEFA done the AYA and so on I've not we've not really touched on that if at all um, and often a lot of these things we're sort of unpacking as we go along or we'll be exposed to certain people. We're asking questions, you know, Dean's working abroad. We're all seeing things from different cultures and we're trying to learn as much as we can. And it's just, it's, that's where my thought process was going, was um, just trying to figure out that and how it will look so different across each continent, you know. And you can see that in the players that are playing in the Premier League, looking how they, they manipulate the ball. Um, so no, those those are my initial thoughts. I'm just I'm interested to see if there's anybody who's listening, who's got perhaps a different approach or a different perspective, that maybe you know I don't know contrary to ours or not, or what the thoughts are from anyone in the room. Yeah, it looks like everyone's a bit quiet tonight, but it's all right. Hopefully, they, they're just digesting everything that's been said. But I think one, one key thing that really jumped out to me again, Gerard, um, even just tailing back into what Dean said, it's just maybe a question for you, Dean. Obviously, you're working with those players in Spain and you've, re you've recognised that the Spanish players in particular have shown more confidence on the ball and, and actually been able to just work under pressure. I guess what are some of the strategies that you're utilising now to support the other ones and maybe developing that to almost the same standard, if you like? Yeah, so a lot of the players that I've got have <clears throat> come from either a US college background or have come through the academy system in England, maybe been released. Some players from the Caribbean that have been highlighted as having some potential, they're trying to get some exposure in Europe, so a real mixture. And they've all come from different kind of curriculums and game models, whatever you want to call it. Um, and I've had different experiences and different kind of ways of playing pushed on them. But, you know, through the year, I've been here for eight months, nine months now. And through the year, we're always talking about how, you know, the Spanish players appear like they've got more time because, and, and they're like, oh, you know, they've, done, they've, they've had better training than us when we were kids and et cetera, you know, all these kind of excuses. And then we sit down and we watch the video and like you guys have just said then, just around 
the communication and the passes, but also the body orientation of the people receiving, are people closed, are people open, are people willing to be able to play open body but receive with their back? So still being able to switch the play but using their back instead of their front and just being creative in that way of playing under pressure but still almost like kind of how Thiago does it where he has those little feints and drops where he goes into spaces and still manages to wriggle out with disguise. So what we've done now is through the like last six months or so, loads and loads of games where the conditions are based around the defending team, whether that's pressure, whether that's forcing the games or possession games into certain areas, which then creates a rule or a condition where the, you know, the in-possession team have to react and solve that problem. So I try and condition the opposition a lot of the time in games that we play or possession games or end-to-end games, end zone games, whatever it is, to force the boys to understand or to improve their ability to receive under pressure. And really, it's just directional games, end zone games, 3v3s, 4v4s, 2v2s, 6v6s, keeping it as short as possible, loads and loads of different variations on rondos, but with an emphasis all the time of trying to make them play under pressure and to be able to combine for certain points, to be able to combine and play through, to be able to dribble through, going back to kind of the old AYA games of, you know, when to dribble, when to pass, just to improve their decision-making through creating games that where the rules are dictating the in-possession team and the conditions are on the out-of-possession team. And, you know, they've made some big strides, but for a lot of them, age 22, 23 and beyond, it's now a question of, you know, is that too late now? You know, can you develop that spatial awareness and that decision-making when you're beyond your 20s and 22, 23? I absolutely believe that you can still continue to improve to your 30, 33, 34, 35, as the best players have talked about in interviews over the past. But that fundamental ability to play, you know, under pressure and be confident and just hold the ball and combine and go and get back on it just has to be there at that young age because it's so difficult to try and embed that when they're 23 and they've got 13, 15 years worth of kind of bad habits and maybe nerves and kind of that pressure of playing under pressure and losing the ball in games and that short-term and long-term memory constantly reminding them that, oh, shit, when I'm in this position, if I lose the ball, X happens. And I see that in games, you know, where players are under pressure and it, they kind of lose that ability to, to hold the ball. So it's really, for me, just around creating the practices and curriculum around the individual players as opposed to around a, a, a fixed game model and then adapting each session and week to week of right, which players are in my session, what are their individual learning plans, how am I going to help this player improve in this session when we're trying to create this goal as opposed to saying, right, we're doing playing through midfield, it's fixed, and this is what I'm going to teach regardless. And because everybody's so different, I've just had to adapt massively over the, the eight months. But it's been a really a really good learning curve for me. And one final thing before I stop talking is I actually go into a lot of sessions now where I've got it half planned. So I haven't planned the whole session at all. I've got an idea of what I want to do. I've got an idea of where I want to get to, but I'll only plan part of the session and I'll let the rest come organically. And if the players, it looks like it's going in one direction, I'll try and create a practice on the hop in my head to allow them to then move on the way that they're going through the session. Because in a game, we don't have time to, you know, the, the game won't go as we plan it, right? The game's going to change. The opposition are going to change their shape. Something might happen during the game where you have to be able to think on the hop. So I start to do that in my sessions now. Maybe 60% of my sessions are planned. 40% of my sessions are part planned and part on the hop. Uh, and for any coaches listening, put yourself under that pressure, chuck yourself in there 
you won't do the players a disservice. It will really improve your ability as a coach to think on the move, which is obviously how it happens in games. No, I think you're spot on there, Dean. Some great stuff in there. I think what you, you know, what you talked there about having your session half planned, if you like, I think it's really key as well. Because I think what tends to happen with a lot of coaches, they go into sessions and they go in with this idea of this is what I want to do, this is what you know, this is exactly what I'm going to coach, and this is why this is how it's going to work. And I think when we do that, we're limiting ourselves in terms of actually allowing the players to have creativity, allowing the players to to have a different way of looking, and just really going at the players' pace, if you like. So I think. You know, that's some great points in there. And I think one, one, one real key thing for me that really jumped out was that it is understanding that every single player will have a different way of working. And I think that balance of having 60% planned and maybe 40% on the fly, if you like, allows you to assess that, allows you to assess right in the moment, this is what they're, this is what they're achieving so far. Where, where does this need to go next? But I think the key thing that you said in all of that is that you know where you want to end up but it's just a bit that getting there is a bit of a, it can be the scenic route sometimes, if you like, because it hasn't been fully planned. It's not the shortest route because, you know, you've planned every single practice. But also sometimes that doesn't always work. And, you know, coming back to another session I've observed recently, the coach had a whole session planned um, and I was there to support him and I was observed in, in, in that capacity. And it was, we ended up spending, you know, he had a 90-minute session, started the session off of a, a couple of different unopposed passing practices just to kind of get them into it, if you like. And we ended up spending 60, 60 to 70 minutes actually just developing that unopposed passing practice. And the quite, you know, the kind of the, the feedback I got from him was, you know, I never realised I could actually, you know, unpack that session so much. And, you know, I just had a, another practice planned after that and another practice planned after that. And I think the one thing I always say is to coaches, the thing that definitely works for me is always reverse engineering my sessions. What does it look like at the back end when I've, when I've actually looked look at it and say this has been successful um, in terms of the outcomes and then kind of work back and what, what are the small pieces that build all that all that up? So I think that's some really good stuff there. Um, cheers for that, Dean. We've got um, another speaker. Um, so let's unmute your mic. Just while you're doing that, I think I think that's an absolutely outstanding piece shared there because it aligns so much with everything we've talked about. And it's just great to see that ability where you'll get so many coaches who are wedded to the session plan and they've planned everything, which we've, we've all done and I still do to some degree. But actually you have that ability, you know, on the hoppers, uh, Dean saying, where coaches can get better at actually paying attention and seeing who's in front of you, as opposed to just going off what's on the piece of paper. I think that's fantastic. Um, how it would align with Coach Ed, I don't know, because I don't know if we'd be allowed in conventional education to do that. But I think the fact that you're doing that in your environment is brilliant. And it'd be a great skill for coaches to certainly try, because it puts us in that ability where, as, as Dean was saying that, I was just thinking, how good are we as coaches in being able to do that? And if you've got a library in your head things that you can do and the transition time isn't too long and you've got the, the skill to be able to adapt the practice, put on something else or whatever, based or stick with something that you're still going and just stay with it and add a couple of conditions. That's a great skill. Um, the challenge will be not everyone's got that in their locker, have they? But how do they get better at it? So brilliant. Absolutely fantastic. Cheers, Dean. Definitely. Um, just uh, we've got Johnny, play, train, grow. Hey boys, how are we doing? How are you doing, uh, Johnny? Very well on our side, man. 
Yeah, it's good. I just want to kind of think about uh, attention versus autopilot when it comes to passing and maybe building on what Dean said about having triggers or, or pre-movements. I think it's important that they, they don't lose. The, if we're building passing in, it can become repetitive and you can switch off. And I think it's important to recognise just when they go from focused and attention and then in autopilot. Because as soon as they drop in autopilot and they're not thinking, that's when the mistakes will creep in. So whether you're varying the turns, your receives, whether it's a trick before you get the ball all the time, or whether you're building in a pre-movement like Tiago, as, as Dean said, I just think, you know, spending time noticing when someone drops on autopilot uh, can, can really help develop a practice and then develop an individual as well. One hundred percent. I like I like all your points there because I, again, you're just paying close attention to the coach having to be able to observe and understand, but equally recognizing individual difference within the practice and how we're all individually different and we'll come and we'll come up with our own solutions. So brilliant. And again, key piece there of like varied experiences and how can we design that within our practices so that players are getting varied experiences. There's individual difference within the practice. And as a result, players can show us what their adaptable solutions are to that. So fantastic. Really interesting. Definitely. Guys, just before we get to the next speaker, just, you know, again, massive, massive show of appreciation for everyone that's in the room tonight. Um, Again, just a reminder, myself and Gerard are are here every single Sunday, taking different questions that have been put to us and just um, having an open conversation and a debate where everyone else can get involved as well. Um, please reshare this space. Please make sure you follow both of us, um, just to keep you keep yourself in, in in involved in the conversations that are going on the spaces and off it. Um, Martin, we've got you up next, mate. Scott, unmute your mic, uh, Martin. Mine's still there, mate. Okay, I think Martin might be struggling with his mic. Um, Martin, we'll give you a few seconds. If not, then we'll, I guess, look to wrap up with some key points from the conversation, really. I think one for me in particular is really jumped out for me is that coaches need to spend more time actually observing and assessing what their players are doing and you know Dean you talked there about the why question and how important that is they're not just understanding the why but also maybe provoking some thought around the why before it even happens so maybe encouraging players to be a bit unorthodox maybe ask them right is there anything that you would do here that might be different to or what would you typically do in this context and what might you do that you haven't considered before Um, so I think just maybe just looking at different ways to kind of get them provoking a bit of creativity and you know a bit of just a variability in what in how they approach different contexts. I think that's probably one of the key messages for me. And also just to think about reverse engineering your sessions from back to front so that you know what the end goal looks like. But just to kind of address the actual question itself in terms of when it becomes key, we're really in- interested to get both your views, Gerard, Dean, and even Johnny yourself. At what age you'd consider passing to actually become a key thing 
Yeah, I don't mind jumping in here. Um, what age to to bring in key? I, I think is as early as you can, but it's fun. And then as you hit pre or early teens to mid teens, you probably just look to add competition. You know, uh, I think healthy competition between individuals, while focusing on technique, can be important. And that doesn't have to be in a passing drill. That could be in a, a fun game set up where you're trying to score from corner flags, you're trying to hit crossbars, you're trying to knock balls off cones from 20, 30, 40 yards away. And then through these practices or games that you build, you can change the technique. So they could have to drill a pass, you know, at 13 or 14, 20, 30 yards. When they're younger, it could be a, a bounce volley and, and hit the crossbar. But, but bringing in that fun bit of competition can can help push them out their comfort zone and hopefully learn from each other as well. Nice spot on there, Johnny. Anything from yourself, Dean, Gerard? Yeah, final little bit from me, Yes, like, Love those points from Johnny there regarding kind of introduction of competition. And like he said, any sort of technique that you want to introduce, any sort of skill practice, you introduce competition you introduce some sort of game format then the players are going to enjoy it if they're going to if they enjoy it they're going to want to do it they're going to want to improve and they will improve and one of the ways that I've tried to hide not hide but just make passing as a topic more interesting is just going from you know 3v3 games or 4v4 games whether to an end line to a goal to an area you know if you're running it in blocks as three minute blocks or four minute blocks you know, at the end of that block, not automatically going into coach mode, but players breaking off into pairs or threes and then working on technique for 30, 45 seconds, sort of active rest as such, active recovery, and then back into the three, four-minute games and walking around as a coach with your assistant coach and correcting any bad technique or kind of, you know, we talked about orthodox versus unorthodox, any techniques that you'd really want to, you know, remove from the group, just walking around to those individuals. Hey, you know, when you go back in, just try and play more of those passes with X or try and, you know, investigate how you can get through that gap, maybe with your toe or, you know, dropping in those little bits. So that when they go back into their 3v3s and 4v4s, opportunity to practice it again in that competition environment, four minutes later, another 45 seconds active rest, walking around the group and just hiding it like that, as opposed to doing just passing backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. You're still getting that repetition, but they know that in 45 seconds or a minute, they're going back into that game. So it keeps them on task, keeps them focused, keeps them thinking, well, if I box these passes off, coach is going to let me get back into that game. And actually, it just, it, you know, the, the technique should stay, the quality will stay higher. And we won't drift into autopilot like one of the speakers talked about earlier. And um, they'll actually stay on it because they know the game's coming next. And I think just dangling that carrot there week to week, session to session is a great way to keep them engaged and kind of hide the learning for the passing in something that's more exciting than just cone to cone. No, I think 100% there, Dean. I think, you know, really, it's just finding a way to kind of keep it going where actually they're not just going for a routine and they're actually, they're actually assessing, observing um, and analysing their decisions you know, pre, during and after, right, what am I about to do? And I think it just comes back to one of the things that we've talked about in the recent weeks about scanning and the importance of it and what we're actually maybe searching for when we are scanning. And Gerald, I think that's a great, great point to kind of bring you back in on, mate. 
You there, Gerard? Oh, sorry, I just had a bad signal there. Just repeat the question again for me. No, I was just saying, obviously, you know, Dean talked about not going into routine and I, I kind of t- I just echoed the point that, you know, obviously we want to try and avoid players going to going into an autopilot, if you like, and just oh, yeah. assess more specifically when they're scanning pre, during and after, what kind of things they are taking into consideration when they are making the decisions, when they're preparing to make a decision, what's important to them. And I was just saying that, you know, it might be a great way to kind of bring you back in because obviously we've spoken in the recent weeks around practice um, and, and, you know, scanning within practice and also, you know, the, the, the term you like to use, search. Yeah, visual search, exploration. I mean, and also I just want to, well, answer it all with, there's a great point there that Dean's talked about, which is uh, the um, coaches often, their default method of coaching is error correction, right? And it, uh, and it sort of, it's interesting how the way we started this episode, we've come back to full circle and it's linked perfectly because... That, and, uh, that earlier point was around this uh, conformity to like the ideal technique of how to perform something and coaches going around and uh, correcting more mistakes and, confo- and uh, imp- imposing their technical model or solution upon the players rather than designing learning environments where the players can cope with their own solutions. So I think it's interesting that when we're talking about error correction and perhaps we should see and revisit the role of the coach being that it's about learning as searching and seeing practice as search. And by doing that, we're, we're, we're seeing the role of the coach as this learning designer as like the last message to finish on. And linked to the scanning piece and the search piece is that players make decisions based on time, space, and number variations. The situation is changing all the time. Over 85% of the decisions players make is through their eyes. Yes, they'll get it from other sources, but over 85% is through their eyes. Having to, I'm watching a game right now, and the players had to make a decision of when to pass, when to dribble, when to close down. So again, it's if we're thinking about passing, is it the eye contact? Is it recognizing the triggers of a hand signal, foot placement, um, double movements? If a if a player is making one run for the defender, second run for them, the timing of their approach, you know, late but quick runs, all this type of stuff, it all comes out of designing environments where players are given choices. So choice and consequence, which is really key, because that allows us to guide where their visual search is, where their attention pays. So where are the players looking for information from the environment in order to come up with their own adaptable and unique movement solution? And that's a a great step way on to future uh, discussions, is how are some of the best ways to develop that? And again, linking it back to one we did earlier where we did one around scanning and search, didn't we, a few weeks ago. But I'd say design environments where there's choice, consequence, because that allows players to have to search for information from the environment. Where's the defender? How far is my teammate? How close is he? So they're looking at distance. They're looking at direction. They're looking at uh, definition. So where is it on the field? They're making decisions super, super, super quick. And uh, for the coach... It's how they use their feedback and their language to guide the attention of the player to look for information externally rather than internally. So if we're focusing on the mechanics of a skill, we break that down, then that leads to an internal focus of attention where the player doesn't look for information from the environment. He has to look at his own body mechanics. And it becomes quite 
uh, robotic and autonomous lead to a lot more injuries, leads to depression, anxiety, and a lack of problem-solving ability. That's research that's told us that. Whereas an external focus of attention will... Any feedback where we're asking them questions and we're guiding them to look for information from the environment and the design of practices doing so, that'll lead to them having to become better at recognising and being game responsive. And the, you know, the people that anyone that's played the game can appreciate that. That you know, you've got to be able to see things. Uh, but if we're always there as that, you know, almost like a helicopter parent, if we're there as a coach where we're over the shoulder, we're joysticking everything, we're there to help the players. They're going to develop that dependency on us. They're going to rely on us for all the solutions and we'll be able to play the game themselves. So we've got to go about how we design environments where they can look for information to solve it. So, yeah, just some lasting messages. I think you're spot on there. Just, you know, I just want to kind of wrap up with one final point on the back end of that show. I didn't, it, it was, um, you know, looking at the idea of, of football in, as a whole. I think football is one of the only things in the world where we don't ask people to look at look out for things first. You know, whether that's reading the terms and conditions, whether that's you know going watching where you're walking and whatever that is. You know, you can't get in a car today and you all of a sudden you just start driving without looking first. You're gonna crash. Football is no different. I think we need to kind of start encouraging players to start looking more, encouraging people around that to bring that message out of just are we observing? Are we observing? Are we observing? Because without the observation piece you're very likely going to make more wrong decisions than you will make right ones. Uh, just on that, just to kind of re, you know, recap, guys, every single Sunday, myself and Gerard are here taking on questions that have been put to us, um, hosting them on this Twitter space. And, you know, we want to get as many people involved, so please do join us. Make sure you're following both our accounts. Um, and the conversation that Gerard talks about there, you can find on episode 158 of the Coaches Network podcast, where all of these spaces are recorded and will be uploaded uh, for you guys to listen back to if you haven't caught all of it or you want to hear it back again. Um, and you can find it on all major platforms. Uh, guys, my name's Yas. It's been great speaking to everyone and having the discussion again. Over to you, Gerard. No, absolutely fantastic. I mean, I just want to say loads of information shared today, loads of things to, to consider. Um, and again, just think about the questions and how they relate to you and your context. Feel free to check out youlearnbleed.com where you can access more information and online courses and sign up to the podcasts and, and obviously join us every Sunday for this um, yeah and just keep keep staying curious really appreciate everyone's time on the Sunday have a great rest of the Sunday and hopefully try some of these things out in your environments and see what the, the impact is with your players and feel free to share that with us well, there you have it, guys. Another episode of the Coaches Network podcast, where our aim is to bring the world of athlete, talent, and personal development together to just one platform. And you can help us with that mission right now by sharing this episode or any of your favorite episodes with everyone that you can think of. You can tag us in those mentions as well on Instagram at the Coaches Network or on Twitter at the Coaches Net. We look forward to hearing from you. Let us know what you thought about today's episode. And until next time, guys, take care. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.